Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to an episode of The Artenders with Mac and Dan. I am Dan, he is Mac. What's up? This week, we are looking at a television show, ran a season in 2016, ran its second season in 2019. It was adapted from a one-woman show in 2013. This show is on Amazon Prime Video, and it is titled Fleabag. It is created, written by, and starring Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Also, if you hear a dog in the background, that's right. <laughs> if, if you've been listening for a while, you, you, know. may, you may know who that is. That is my roommate's dog, Coda. And so occasionally, we like to greet her. And so right about now, we'll both say, Hi, Hi Coda. Coda. And always. now... This was Max selection yeah. for this week. Um, before I throw it to you, Mac, and to your reasons as to why uh, you picked this show, I just want to get this out there. This was a joy. It is. It, it's a joy. It's an absolute joy. Fleabag is, and really everything that Phoebe Waller-Bridge has ever made. Um, or at least have been a part of. Has been a part of. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, Star Wars 2, I suppose. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, you remember that? <laughs> um, so... The reason that I picked this show specifically is that uh, I I was watching Killing Eve, which is funny enough is actually the other show that uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge was uh, had a hand in producing and creating and whatnot, right? And so I was really uh, I was really happy with that show, and I started thinking about it and realized that Killing Eve and Fleabag were some of my favorite shows that I've seen in, in, in quite a while, right? And I was wondering to myself, why is that? What is it about the stuff that Phoebe Waller-Bridge is a part of that really just gets me going, that makes me so excited to watch it, right? And I started realizing that these two shows have something in common that really nothing else has in common, that, that I haven't seen in a very, very long time. Right. And it's theater-specific. Okay. You can tell that she is a theater performer and that she comes from theater because... Oh, yeah, I, I She agree. places an outstanding amount of trust in the actor. Yeah. And that is something that I just genuinely have not seen really much at all, especially in film. Mm-hmm. Um, but film and TV both. It's just so rare for a writer and a director. Because that, that, that looks like two different things, and we'll talk about that. Yeah. For a writer and a, a director to both actually give the actor time to make their own decisions. So often we talk about how, uh, you, you know, in theater... Theater is a writer-to-actor medium. The writer makes the content or the ideas and whatnot, right? And then, and, and that's, like, the story is the text. Because at the end of the day, like, the actors are the one telling the writer's story. Exactly. It, it, particularly, like, there's a heavy emphasis in that, especially with, like, how often, for example, in productions, like, they really, really want you to get those lines out. I mean, to a T, right? right? And and to such a point, like, it's it's a very, very finely tuned product, but they want you to keep that product consistent to the script so much of the time. Exactly. And and, and, and that's theater. That's, that's, that's theater is writer to actor medium. And specifically in America, in Western culture. Because once you get into, like, Germany and especially into Asia, then it does start to become more of a director's game. Mm-hmm. But in Western culture, we know... Theater to be a writer to actor medium. Ultimate trust in the actor. They're the one, from an audience perspective, they're the one that is taking you through the story. Yeah. Whereas film is not the case. That's simply not the case. It is a writer to director medium. 
the writer makes the ideas and the concepts and all that, and, the, and, 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 they, and they put the story and the words and the text. And then the director, it, it's their job to tell the story. It's their job to put it in front of you. So you as a, an audience member, whenever you're watching film or television, yes, the actor is important in the same way that a, a theater director is important. And there's still the vehicle of a lot of the storytelling as well. Oh, absolutely. But whenever you're watching film or television, the director is the one that is ultimately the leader of your story, the leader of taking you through that story, right? right. So something that is so rare in film and television, because it is a writer-to-director medium, is actually trusting the actor, is actually allowing them the freedom and the time and the space to make their own decisions, to really explore, explore the character, and uh, have enough time to understand. And not just like, oh, had they done their homework? Not, not that type of thing. Yeah. I mean, give them time to actually fill out a moment by themselves. A, a really interesting test, that, if you're curious what I'm talking about, an interesting test is whenever you're watching something, specifically a dramatic scene, not as much in comedy, specifically a dramatic scene where an actor really wants to breathe and you know ha have their own moment. Notice how many times the shot cuts in the scene. Notice how often the camera ch angle changes. Mm. Notice how often you get audio cuts. Because the more and more you see it, that shows you that the less and less the director trusts the actor. Now, hold on, hold on. I have to stop you right there because I think a really good example of a lot of cuts in a scene and like a jumping back and forth, I would think is uh, in the second season, it's the very first episode when uh, basically the principal cast is having a big old dinner yeah. Right, like all those characters are having a dinner together, but there are plenty of cuts in that scene. So, yeah. so typically, I think yes, what you're saying rings true, but I feel like that is an exception to this show because it's less about, at least in this case, like not necessarily like it's not representative of them not trusting the actors, uh -huh. but it's it's the pacing and the storytelling within the scene. Right. Sure. 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 Well, another thing. That, uh, and, and this is, this is, yeah, because that was more of a test. Like, if you're ever curious what I'm talking about, that is, a, that is an easy test to look at. Yeah. But in terms of this show specifically, what this show specifically does that I see and am so excited by as a viewer and also just as a, an artist, as, as, as a theater maker, right? Yeah. Um, I see it and I notice all of the times in which there was a moment of... Silence. And there is a moment of breath or, or a moment that I get with the actor where I know as an audience member that it wasn't in the script for them to do all these like micro things, for, for all, the, all these micro expressions. It wasn't in the script for them to take it in this direction or to fill out this breath or this silence in the way that they did. That was the director and the writer allowing the actor to have that much agency over that moment. There, I mean, and that, I think it speaks to how theatrically inspired this show is. Of course, it's coming from a one-woman show, but uh, I think what you're saying where those breaths and those moments of silence and having silence be as much of a piece of dialogue uh, as is the actual words on the page. Uh, I think it that is one of the most electric things about theater, right? That 
you know, so, some, so much of the time, especially particularly when you're watching a good piece of theater uh, and you get really involved and invested in what the going-ons of the characters are, more often than not, you may very well match the breath pattern yeah. of some of the actors, some of the people, some of the characters on stage, right? And so on stage when there is silence and... But but you see, you're very actively able to see the process of somebody, uh, of what they're going through in their head, and, and you can hear their breath so clearly, and it's just one of those things that it, it feels like right there, I mean, you can just touch them, right? Right. Of course, and that's, that is what is so great about theater, um, but that sort of uh, idea uh, is so finally translated to the screen of this show but to speak on that mac do you have a specific example about how uh that silence operates within a scene absolutely yeah yeah. so um you got me really nervous there i just want to say because your eyes well yes because your eyes were so big (laughs) and i was like oh no am i not setting this up enough i'm doing something wrong i'm failing Am I gonna have to have fill in the silence? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm here with you. I'm, I'm listening. I was ah. listening. So, and well, that actually is a very good segue. Sorry, I didn't even mean to do that. Um, Coda's having that, a field day. Oh, hi, Coda. Um, one of my favorite parts about the show is the actor's ability to listen. Uh, and very rarely can you even tell an actor is listening. In film yeah. and television, you know what I mean? Yeah, because of how the cuts are done, sure. and like oftentimes, also, also so much of the time that like somebody is acting to nothing, right? Because like right. that other actor is in the trailer. Well, they have a stand-in, or it's just like a wall. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's very difficult, and they, they they edit it in such a way that it's just kind of muddy, and you're like, ah, I can't really tell. Yeah, and so it doesn't bother you because you don't know they're not listening, but you don't you can't tell they are. It's just whatever. But in this show, it's very vividly clear that everyone was actually listening in the scenes that they were a part of. Yeah. There were very, very few scenes that uh, just we went to really fast and then, and like the scenes weren't like 10 second scenes. Each scene was a substantial written theatrical-esque scene. Right. Um, and, and and that requires every single moment to be a listening moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, which, was, which is beautiful. But uh, something specifically that, that I, I noticed while watching this show and while watching Killing Eve, which I might force you to watch eventually, <laughs> um, is that there's this concept in theater that's really hard to uh, translate to film and TV. And it is that um, it's the reason that we have uh, so much classic work redone over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. W- w- well, I'll ask you. Why do you think that it's so important that like so many people, so many different people have played Hamlet? Or why do you think it's important that so many different people have, you know, pl- played like these huge roles? Why do we keep seeing it over and over and over again? Not just Shakespeare, but in general. I, I think generally it's a testament to the quality of the writing, but it's more so, I think, uh, a director or perhaps a theatrical company is retelling a story because they want to get a specific thing in that story across, right? So you may see like a production of Macbeth that is set during 
uh, let's just say, like, the, the conflict in the Middle East, right? Yeah. And, like, so the directors and, and everybody involved are trying to say something very, very specific about that. Um, or may, maybe, like, there's a lot of, like, interfamilial hostility that's, like, happening um, uh, in, like, that's being shown to uh, the public a lot, so maybe you'll see something like a streetcar named Desire or like Dinner with Friends, you know, sure. just like stuff like that, right? But there's, sure. but there's, it's not so much telling news stories and trying to get the themes of those news stories across. It's more about uh, retelling old stories because those themes uh, still apply to today. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, Macbeth was a lovely example. So I mean, we we went through and watched a million different uh, versions of Macbeth, right? So right. So there's like a, a Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen and a Michael Fassbender and all these different uh, Macbeths that we saw. And what's so lovely about them is that even though it's the same character, same story, right? They are drastically different versions of Macbeth. And the script doesn't change. Like there no. may be some cuts here and there, Absolutely. but like in terms of additions, next to none. If if any, if Ab- any, exactly. So, um, even though with most film and TV, if they had cast someone else, yes, the vibe would have been a little different. But at the end of the day, we would have still gotten the same points across, right? At the end of the day, if if, if you cast like Seth Rogen in The Hangover instead of Zach Galifianakis, yes, it would have been different. But uh, you still would have gotten the same vibes. It, they, 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 it, it would have been the same, you know, general point, right? Right. You can really cast mo- like you can replace anyone in Hollywood, and it'll be fine. That's how that's how it's made. It's that is a gross that- generalization, but I understand what you were trying to say. Yeah, there's just very little trust. I mean, um, in in the actors in that way, and with Fleabag and with Killing Eve, but uh, we're talking about Fleabag, is that I love it because I really do think that. If you were to get a different actor to play each role, really, really, that entire character would change. In the same way that we watch Macbeth and all these different versions of these characters really actually do change. And there are actually 100% different versions. And there's like validity in different people wanting to play Macbeth because you, you want your own interpretation of it. And I really do think that Andrew Scott's hot priest <laughs> is his version and if we got someone else to play it it would be entirely different not just like uh, like, like like a different like general vibe or whatever the the character yeah. would have looked different and had different moments and 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 uh, different things would have shown through in the same way with with uh, Fibuola Bridges as as Fleabag if they had gotten someone different to play that role it really would have actually changed. And that's very, very rare in film and TV. So like the moments whenever she breaks the fourth wall, which we're going to have to get into, where she breaks the fourth wall and looks into the camera and makes some funny face. Um, that's not scripted. It's scripted that you look maybe in the camera and say something, but whenever it's just a, a facial expression or a thought that you watch her have on her face, that's an actor thing. That's not a writer thing. That's not just a director thing. And that's something so rare that I see next to never in film and TV. That makes me so excited. And this is my last point. Okay. <laughs> my, my, my last point as to why I think that this is some of the most actor-driven uh, media that I have ever seen. That on is screen. not specifically theater. That's not theater. Yeah. yeah. The on-screen, actor-driven media. Right. Um, 
and why it makes me so excited because that's my favorite part of theater and that's the thing that I think is missing in film and TV that, mm-hmm. that really brings me back to theater consistently is is is, is the trust is the uh, alive and in the moment feeling right that that the actor is is there to provide that the director and the director just can't do that the actor is the only one that can provide you with that live uh, real life in the moment like right in front of you feeling um and it is that this is this is my hot take. Get ready. Oh, this is my, this is my I don't know sorry. what a hot take is. Oh, a sizzle Thank serve. You. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> this is my sizzle serve. I really, really do believe um, this is the only thing I've ever seen, uh, film and TV wise, that every single actor was having a good ass time. I can't think of a rebuttal at the moment no yes i can it's going to have to be and and not because i want to like prove you wrong sure sure sure, go ahead but like but also this is the only rebuttal that i can think of and probably the only rebuttal that i'm going to have in my arsenal is a movie that came out a couple of years ago knives out knives out's good as shit knives out is a whodunit and like but honestly, like, like when you are a part of a whodunit that is of the quality of Knives Out, yeah, how could one not, not enjoy fun. being a part of that's that fun. process? That's yeah. fun. Yeah, that's right? fun. But, but I think to your point in what you're saying that it's very rare to come across this sort of electricity and this sort of pure engagement that you can obtain from the actors and that's popping off the screen that is few and very much so rare to come by. Yeah. You do not see that a lot, period. And so when it finally does happen and you get to experience it as an audience member, it's really enriching. And I think also, I didn't appreciate it at first, but once I finally finished this series and was able to think back on it, and the more I think about this show, I think the more it just gets better. And yeah. it's it's one of the few things... It's very um, rewatchable, by the exactly. way. Exactly. And, and and what I was going to say is that um, it's certainly rewatchable in such a way that already... Like, I finished the show yesterday, and I want to watch it again yeah. already. Yeah. And I, I don't know another thing that like necessarily does that for me that once i finish a story i want to re-experience that story immediately Mm. like sometimes there is a story and like the big thing about the story is um sort of leaving the past behind us and what happens happens and we have to move on and like sometimes and those stories can be really good and but part of the experience of those stories is to let that story be but there was something about this one in particular that it was just a treat to watch Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character, like her progression and her growth as a person and who she is to her loved ones. And even though it's not necessarily her loved ones at first, it definitely grows to be such a case. But I I think this show manages to be very, very beautiful. And I also want to mention there's a very deep enriching audience connection that happens because you are treated as a character in this show. And if yeah. you don't understand what I'm saying, it is because Phoebe Waller-Bridges' character, Fleabag, she's just called Fleabag, but she's never addressed by name. Um, she, <laughs> Which I love. She breaks the fourth wall and she communicates with you. She is both a, you know, a, she is 
in these scenes, like as a character, but she's also a narrator. It is kind of similar to the very famous example of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? Yeah. Where you have this person experiencing what's going on in these scenes. Um, but you are also, the audience member is also a character. And so you are Fleabag's confidant, mm. essentially. And so the more I think about it, the more it feels like I was actually a part of that experience too. And so the show really, really succeeds, particularly when it's breaking that convention. Mm-hmm. There are a few ways in how the show does this. Uh, the most, uh, I guess, not as obvious, um, but the more frequent, I suppose, of ways was when you would have occasionally these very, very long scenes and Fleabag doesn't address the camera at all. Probably the biggest example of that would be at the very end of the first season, right? Where she's spilling out to the bank manager and she kind of sort of cracks her, right? There's something that cracks, like the the straw finally breaks the camel's back, similar to uh, Jimmy McNulty at the end of The Wire season three, (laughs) right? There's something that finally breaks with his character and like them realizing I have to change, right? And so, so much of the show is Fleabag looking at the character, I mean, excuse me, looking at the camera, addressing you, and it's like, get a load of this shit, right? But in those nearly 10 minutes, she doesn't address us at all. Yeah. And so it's kind and of that's a, one of the longest times that she goes without. Yeah, right. Exactly. And and it's just kind of one of those things that she's finally sort of looking in the mirror metaphorically speaking. Finally in that moment, right? Yeah. Where she is forcing herself to confront with herself. Yeah. As opposed to using um this sort of I mean literally a device uh to get away from what she's actually feeling. And then another way that the show breaks this convention, and we'll probably get a little bit more into this later, because uh, I, I don't want to step on what yeah, you're no, about no, to no, say, no, no, no. but it's how the show introduces, you were saying, Andrew Scott's character, mm. the priest, and... Genius. I mean, you don't... you don't When you have, like, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, like, nobody else sees the camera. It's just Ferris Bueller, right? So it feels like this special connection. Oh, but God, then this the priest notices... When Fleabag looks at the camera. So it's a really, really jarring moment when it happens. And so, like, for us as the audience, it's like, you can see us too? Like, but you can't, like, <laughs> but he can't necessarily see us. He can, he notices when Fleabag is looking away from the scene. Like, she leaves the scene and she enters a dialogue with us, right? And when he notices that, it's like, oh, that's weird. I'm uncomfortable. But that what's that is also what makes you special, makes you different yeah. and actually enhances the connection between you and Fleabag. You were going to mention something earlier, but, but I don't I'm, know. I'm excited. I'm on this now. So, okay. Um, and, and, and this is something that we call in the biz uh, <laughs> metatheatrical storytelling. A not what? Metatheatrical storytelling. Metatheatrical storytelling. Yeah. That it's not just um, – that that it's like a meta moment where it's like oh and like we're so aware of the fact that we're in a play or in a story or whatever it's right. it's not just that and it's not just that you are getting a story where um 
where you, you see him getting closer to her enough to where he feels like 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 they're relating or or where he like like kind of like they kind of graze handsome like that. It's it's not just that. It's both happening at the same time. Yeah. Where they're able to use a funny and jarring and wild and conceptual theatrical meta theatrical moment where we're very aware, right? And 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 we're breaking all these conventions and just not that it's also happening, but by doing that, you are telling a story. By doing that, you're getting further, right? So he is, uh, so, so you're making this huge directorial move and writer move, story move, yeah. and it's serving the relationship and the arc of the characters, which is so smart and hard to do. Sorry, go ahead. But no, 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 but it's also using, instead of, it's going beyond a device and actually having the audience be a character, right? right. The that, device isn't there just to be a device. It's there for the sake of the story. There was something about, I, I'm, I'm going to keep comparing it to Ferris Bueller's Day Off because that is the most famous example of yeah. the usage of the device. But at least from my experience, I never felt like I was a character in that movie, right? As yeah. opposed to in Fleabag, the more I think about it, and certainly in season two, there are so many times where I feel like a character and yeah. I feel like a participant in the story, right? That, and, and I think maybe it's partially because of the dramatic storytelling the nature of this show but i think it's also something that's really finely well translated from the original uh sort of writing that was the one woman show yeah. right where you see this i mean in, did you see, see any clips from that i, I okay, saw but... a few clips i was unfortunately not able to watch a sort of production it's only like 80 minutes but um mm. as far as i can tell it's not very easily accessible no. online uh unfortunately at the moment but it was for like a like a week a like little a bit second. and i yeah. think it was primarily during at the beginning of the pandemic yes um but uh what is very very good about uh the translation from stage to screen uh is what you see a lot in, in traditional one man or woman shows is this communication with the audience and treating the audience as a character, right? That it's, it's not necessarily having a mo monologue, it's having a dialogue with the audience. Yeah. Very so good that, is, that is very, very clear in the original uh, sort of form yeah. of this writing. And instead of doing the sort of thing where, let's, let's use like books, for example, like adaptions of books, like occasionally, you know, or it certainly feels like that whoever the narrator is or like the character that happens to be the narrator like they're talking to you right and so in so much of the book it feels like there's a dialogue between you and the narrator in the novel but you don't hardly see that uh translation survive right you don't you hardly get a narrator when the page is adapted to the screen but in the case of this, and I think it was a very, very wise decision that really, really paid off in the storytelling, was having that device, that dialogue with the audience survive. And it was sort of the linchpin to kind of how season two started, that the big inspiration for season two was introducing a character that could see Fleabag yeah. have the dialogue with yeah. the audience. And sort of having that be the baseline and growing from there actually gives way to a really, really beautiful character relationship that is just a treat to watch, not only because of the writing, but of course because it's Andrew fucking Scott. 
Andrew Scott's so freaking good. Is he brilliant. not? He's, He's so absolutely good. brilliant. I, I cannot think of a better word to describe it. It that's exactly it is it, it is exactly brilliant. And that's not to say like nobody else on the show is fantastic. Oh, no, plenty. everybody on the show is absolutely. brilliant. But yeah, but 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 those moments were some of the most pivotal and uh, s- biggest storytelling moments where Andrew Scott and Phoebe Waldbridge together. But that, yeah. that that brings me to a very interesting point and something that um, uh, you know I, I guess I'll use to wrap up the the, the first half of this bad boy is that um, I just now realized this as we were talking about it that it's not a story about changing. I thought it was a story about a person that changes because every story is about a person that changes. Right. It is the entire first season is watching her simply attempt to make an effort to change. And she fails. Yeah. Constantly. Constantly. Right. That was something that I picked up on. Uh, and I think that was probably one of the bigger things that I think season one didn't necessarily stick for me. Uh, I began to watch it. Uh, around last year, I think, the first season. Uh-huh. Um, and, like, it's not long, and I definitely should have stuck with it now, having watched the full thing and and am able to, like, look at it as a whole, um, the sort of beauty and the storytelling that was the first season. But I think that was the thing that kind of, like, partially stopped me at first was that there wasn't necessarily uh, character progression in the sense of, like, the steady rise or fall Right, that we just saw like a person at work, right, and then it hits her like a brick wall at the very end. Yeah. Um, which I think, in the grand scheme of things, uh, serves the show better. Yes. Um, but at first, it yeah. took me a second to get into it. It feels slow because you're not getting the checkpoints that you're used to. You're not getting the ah yes now the story has started ah yes now we're on our journey because it's just her. Trying, it, it's almost like an escalator. Like we're we're not, we we have not gotten on the escalator, gotten to the first floor, and then got up to the second floor, and then got up to the third floor. Yeah, we're just watching her like kind of like figure out how to put her foot on and trust the escalator that is not going to start moving too fast, and then she finally gets on the escalator. Exactly. By the end of the first season. Yes, and it's not necessarily she doesn't really learn anything no. per se <laughs> you just see her navigate through bullshit constantly right uh, regardless of whether the bullshit <laughs> is from you know by herself or from others putting it upon her i think the bridge would fucking adore what you just said i think that she would really appreciate that because that's ex- i think she would laugh her ass off at just but that. i didn't appreciate that at first yeah right and i don't think that's a ludicrous bullshit yeah that's but so i don't funny. think that's a ludicrous thing to experience of oh. like not necessarily liking that at first but it was certainly one of those things that i wish the first time somebody told me to watch fleabag was to like Maybe say, hey, it will seem like nothing is necessarily happening yeah. uh, plot or character-wise at first. But I can assure you, like, either these things are going to matter, which they do. Um, but also, it's, it is just trust in it. Mm-hmm. And trust in the writing. And I wish I had trusted it at the beginning. And that's on me. And I can't necessarily blame the show. Like, I understand where one would get the idea and the sort of thought process of what I went through. Um, But now having consumed the full thing, I definitely should have trusted it from the get-go. I see. Right. And and, 
funny enough, that was actually the exact same experience that I had with The Wire. At first, I was like, I don't think anything's happening. And then all of a sudden, I have to go back and rewatch it because I'm like, Because oh, things were fuck, happening and like you so don't much. necessarily exactly. Right, you right, missed it. Right. You missed it. And it was right under your nose the entire time. Absolutely. And so it just it felt like a bunch of nothing. And that's partially the reason why I want to rewatch this show kind right. of immediately. It's just like there were things that I missed. And I know that I missed them because I'm stupid and Phoebe Waller Bridge is beyond brilliant. Absolutely. And Absol- I, I, I agree. Not with even that. to talk down to myself. That's no. just fact of the matter it is it absolutely is um and i i would be happy happy to uh go into even further analysis and maybe even a little bit of origin story as to how this uh awesome piece came about whenever we uh come back from a word from our sponsor welcome back to the art tenders with mac and dan uh so we left off talking about or or, or teasing if you will the oh yeah Oh yeah! Um, never the, do that again. I'm gonna <laughs> stop you right there. No, 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 no! no don't never, stop it. never, no, no, no! I'm not stopping like us recording. I'm just telling. I'm stopping you. Oh, you need to look in the mirror, and just that's it. <laughs> and just, just, I just come to terms with who you are. Just take it in. Yeah. Sure. So, um, uh, we teased a little bit the uh, origin, uh, origin story of uh, some some of the concept yeah. of. Fleabag, so... Um, that, yes, it you, was a... I'm so sorry. I yeah, just no, took a bit old, big old doo-doo on uh, what you were saying. I, but what I was going to say was that it, it being originally a one-woman show that premiered in 2013. Yes, exactly, right. Um, and so whenever she was asked by producers and, and, and by people that uh, had seen the one-woman show and after they saw it once, just like we had the urge to now, they were like, I need to go see that shit again. So they watched it several, several times and were like, wait a second. We need to be making this something that is much larger. This could be much more than just a one-woman show that mm. exists and leaves and that's yeah. it. Because they were like, I don't think that anyone else could do a one-woman show like that. So it's not like anyone's going to be taking that script and, and making it into another one-woman show. It's like this runs for as long as Phoebe wants to do it and then it never exists anymore. Yeah. We need to capitalize on this. So they uh, throw a bunch of money at her and are like, go ahead and make your shit, right? Um, and this is the funny thing. Now it's like, okay, it's going to be an actual show, like a series. So I'm going to get characters and I'm going to make them full-fleshed scenes. Even though she acts her, she, herself, she acts out scenes with herself. Correct. It's, it's not like she's just telling you the story of, or it's not just she's just acting her side of. She's acting both characters, which is... Cool. And Wait. lines from the one woman show are ripped and placed and transplanted into the yeah. television show. Right, right, right. And you, you might be able to uh, let us in a little bit more on uh, um, solo performance because I, I, I only know so much about solo performance and I know that you, little star, are pretty good at it. Um, I, okay, so hold on, hold on. To give context, I took a, I just, I just took a class in college and at the also at the end of the semester we did our own solo performances right but the curriculum in the class was also viewing yeah. a lot of solo performances as well so like i mean some that really really stick in my head and a lot of their names are unfortunately escaping me right um but like probably the best example would be anna devere smith and if you don't know anna devere smith she does a lot of these solo performance shows but um 
they are sort of research projects and it come coming from interviews and she uh performs you know as these characters from these interviews right and and there are also plenty of other examples i mean like stand up you know like comedy yeah. stand up is the most famous example of a solo performance right yeah and so like one we saw in that class was hannah gatsby who's excuse me oh, hannah gatsby hannah gatsby so who good. is brilliant the one that we saw was nanette which i recommend um but you know like i mean people like i mean i think the best example to me is like dave chappelle right dave chappelle's a great so, solo performance. but like once you realize like what a solo, solo performance is and sort of look at the art of the solo performance what makes them very very tricky is that nobody's there to help you yeah nobody is there to assist you like at least when doing this show you and me mac that if i start drowning all of a sudden in the middle of a take or a thought you are there to save me and vice versa and that has come to fruition sometimes maybe (laughs) you the audience member has noticed and maybe you haven't it happens right but we have each other to lean on right but sometimes you may t- tune into the radio uh, if people still fucking do that and uh, go to like an AM show here and there. Uh, but I mean, we're like old souls. True. Is the difference. Yeah. But tune, tune into the radio and there's just like one person talking the entire time. And I think to myself, how do they do that? Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of sometimes the thought experience that I have to solo performances as well. It's just how do they do that? Because it's a lot of work. And the solo performance that I did in college was only like 15 minutes or so when some of these can run up to an hour long, right? And it's not just jokes, yeah. you know? And, and, and like stand-up is a whole other beast that is insanely complicated and insanely difficult and looks easy because they make it look easy. And that's a very similar thing with the rest of solo performances too. Um, but there is a lot of work and love and care and work and blood and sweat and tears and work that goes into those pieces of art. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but I, I have to say, though, I do have to brag on you for a sec because I was really only emotionally moved by two, two pieces throughout all of my college experience. And one wasn't even at campus. Like it was, uh, it was, it was second thought. And second thought is a theater, a theater in, Dallas. in Dallas. Yes. Um, and the other one was your solo performance. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah, I cried like a like a little bitch. Oh, I, I yeah, I yeah, it, it got me. That, that grandfather shit. Anyway, so um. Yeah, it's it's absolutely <laughs> difficult. Sorry, no, <laughs> reminiscing that huge um, tangent. Sorry, uh, that's no. on me. That's on me. No, that uh, you're you're absolutely right. It is extremely difficult and it's strange and it's a very specific type of medium. So how are you going to translate that onto uh, a series? Yeah, yeah? especially whenever, um, especially whenever a one woman show is all about uh, focus. And all about the story in your head, and series and acting in a series is all about listening and being with the person in front of you. How is that going to translate for Phoebe? But also, how is that going to translate like like the scenes and the content? And it really, really, really does. But she knew that she could not translate it appropriately, right? If she did not have actors that she trusted could turn her words into active 
text rather than just funny ideas. And we touched on this kind of a little bit in the first part, but for a lot of these actors in the show, I mean, after all, Phoebe Waller-Bridge created uh, this you know, version of Fleabag. Of course, she is going to use people that she uh, knows or yeah. has worked with before because Absolutely. why wouldn't she, right? Uh, the bis- biggest example would be uh, her name is Sean Clifford. Yeah. And she plays Fleabag's sister in the show, Claire. Yes. And they're supposedly, besties. yeah, they're best friends. They uh, not necessarily grew up together, but they went to school yeah. together. They've known each other for many, many years. Yeah. And so that relationship on the screen that even though for so much of the story of the show, Fleabag and Claire do not like each other and uh, are kind of sort of pessimistic towards one another um but the chemistry between the actors is still inherently there yeah and it becomes really really evident when fleabag and claire are sharing a scene where they actually like each other Mm -hmm. right and so it's like it's it's going beyond because you're going you just generally you the audience member you listening right now the listener when you look at a piece of art, occasionally you're going to see or hear or watch something that the work of the actor becomes so clear, right? But it's the work of the actor occasionally. Like, I mean, a really good example of an actor that does that is like Daniel Day-Lewis and the work that he puts into the roles that he does is parallel to none, right? But then occasionally... And once again, we touched on this a little bit in the first part. Occasionally, you're going to see not only the work from the actors and their raw talent occasionally too, but um, but also just the people themselves, the actors themselves enjoying the moment. Mm-hmm. And you get that a lot in this show. You get that particularly with Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Sean Clifford's scenes uh, whether or not, like I said, they're upset or happy with each other, but it becomes very evident and very clear when, uh, in those scenes that they are happy with one another. I mean, in the fourth episode of the first season, when Fleabag and Claire are in this silent retreat, uh, they sort of become closer in that way. They sort of split apart towards the end of that season, unfortunately, but in that episode, they become a lot closer. And that chemistry, I wish I could further articulate and find the words to it and to the experience as an audience member. But I, I guess just trust me when I say that it becomes really, really clear when you are viewing it, right? And, and I think partially it is still when Fleabag is not addressing the camera that when you have Fleabag, the character, sort of actually actively participating in a scene and sort of ignoring you, the audience, scenes become a lot more electric. Yeah. Um, not only for the character that is Fleabag, but I think also to the Phoebe Waller-Bridge, her experience yeah. as well. And that rings true for so much of this cast, and it really, really rings true in the second season with her scenes with Andrew Scott and 
really good example of that is when they're having their scene at the cafe mm. and Fleabag is showing the priest the cafe for the first time and just how they're speaking with one another and how they're flowing verbally with one another. And they're kind of, it's, it's, it plays a lot more realistic in terms of how conversations work, right? We're, we talk kind of funny on this podcast because that's just how podcasts go. But generally speaking in conversation, we are stomping all over each other yeah. all the time, right? And so that happens a lot in this particular scene. And it's just, you can read the joy yeah. Off of their faces. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and and there's something that it takes so much trust to actually uh, um, to, to, to trust an actor to come into a project that you've written and that you're starring in and yeah. that you're so Because so, this is Phoebe Waller Bridge's baby. Absolutely. You know? Like this is her thing. So of course, why wouldn't she want to bring people that she loves to work with? Cool. Right, right, right. You know? And and so it's funny. Especially because, when she has a say in it. I mean, come on. Yeah. It, it, it's funny because uh, you can tell that between this and Killing Eve, that um, she has an extensive theater career, uh, both in like super upscale, posh, like higher end theater and underground, like, you know, make it myself DIY type theater that we like to do in basements and shit. Yeah. Um, so, so you can tell that Fleabag is her underground project that she decided to make with all of her posh friends. Yeah. With, like, all of her RSC buddies. Yeah. All Royal Shakespeare Company buddies. Like, Andrew Scott, Bill Patterson, Olivia Coleman, All these really famous, well-known, very, like, high-up, upscale uh, theater performers. Um, uh, Ginny Rainsford, another one. Um, Sean Clifford is, is, is the best friend, obviously. But yeah. is still also a very reputable actor. Um, and it's funny because... While that is the case, then Killing Eve is the opposite of that. It is her very well-produced, very expensive, very well-publicized project with all of her underground theater friends. So it's like people that are going and doing stuff at like the Don Mar warehouse or like uh, like, like little tiny theaters in in London, like Harriet Walter or Fiona Shaw, mm-hmm. these tiny little names. Or um, and, and then the only, the only real celebrity on that show is Sandra Oh, who is also known for going and doing underground theater like that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's funny whenever you notice this and it kind of makes you excited because you're like, oh shit, like that, like they're all buds, like they all know each other already. Um, this world's really small. Very. And we are experiencing that so much as artists, for sure. But, yeah. But it's it's enjoyable to watch a piece of work, and, like, their world is really small, and this work is better for it. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And and, and they use it to their advantage, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, and it does beg the question, and we've kind of been alluding to it the, this, this whole podcast, but do well, you think this could have happened... If it wasn't a one-woman show first, if it wasn't th- not not just a one-woman show, but theater, do you think that this show could have happened if it wasn't a piece of theater first? The inspirations and the roots of theatrical performance, to me, because I mean we're a theater artists, right? Uh, I can imagine that it doesn't necessarily ring so loudly for people who are not theater artists, but as theater artists, it does. Certainly. Uh, so would this show have been possible without those roots? I don't think so. Same. Um, because of just where those roots came from. Yeah. Right? Like, 
The breaking as, of the fourth wall. Thing. Yeah, the breaking of the fourth wall thing, and it's so much more a dialogue with the audience, right? That becomes really, really present from a one-woman show that's done in theater. Yeah. You know, because, like, when doing a solo performance show, there are, I mean, really either two ways to do it. There's one that, like, you're not really addressing the audience, um, or, like, you're, you're being these characters, but that fourth wall is very much so there. Or the fourth wall isn't there. Like, either you're doing these monologues or you're having a dialogue with the audience, right? You see so much in typical theater that, so much of the case, it's dialogue between characters on the stage. Uh, and then not as often you're going to get uh, a dialogue with the audience. I mean, like a famous example of one doing both is like The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams. But I think what really benefits this show is because it kept the roots. Yeah. And when it translated from theater, from the stage to the screen, that Phoebe Waller-Bridge decided, I am going to keep the sort of character of the stage show. And like I said, and like what we've been saying, it aided in the storytelling of this because we felt, the audience, we felt like we were a character and we were an active participant in this show. And I don't think I've ever had an experience quite like this with a television show or movie. Yes. That, like for once, I am not an observer I am also a participant. Yes. That even though I am still observing as a participant, that this character, it feels like this character couldn't be here without me. Yeah. Wow, that's a very good way of putting it. That if you took away Ferris Bueller's Day Off's narration, same movie. That movie would not be any different. If you take away Fleabag's narration in this show... It's a completely, very boring show. It's a completely different show. Yeah. Because of how important that relationship is treated. Yeah. And of course, like, that device is, you know, really delved into, particularly in the second season with the priest. But how important that relationship is valued to the development of Fleabag as a character. Yeah. And also, now that we're getting into an era of, of just human culture and social culture where most problems that we face are internal. There are very few problems that we face that are, uh, or sorry, there are very few problems that we face that have not been addressed already. Most things have been talked about in theater or film or TV that are external, that are problems that one person can have with another person, right? And we've, we've, we've touched on racism, we've touched on, we've touched on sexism, we've, and we've touched on all these things. And yes, it's important to keep talking about those things, but in terms of new or not done before, really the, 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 um, uh, the untouched landscape looks a lot like internal conflict. And so how do you effectively handle internal conflict in a way that's actually interesting and not boring? And this is some of the most interesting internal conflict to the point where that's the whole story. The whole story is internal internal conflict. Yes. And it actually adds, right? And uh, another thing that 
uh, that, that we were talking about um, is, yeah, I, I definitely don't think this could have happened uh, without it being theater first because it really uses some of my favorite parts of theater that film and TV just simply don't have. And I've always had this question in the back of my mind of, is that ever going to be able to translate? Because if it doesn't, then theater's not going anywhere. And I'm and I'm definitely going to keep going to theater and preferring theater yeah. because I love the uh, connection that that I have to the to the actor. I love the trust that I had that I and the writer and the director all have to put in this one performer in front of us uh, to to really actually lead us through the story. I I love all that stuff, right? Um, and I've always wondered, like, am I ever going to get that feeling of, uh, you know, mysticism or, or also, just like you were saying, a feeling like I needed to be there watching it for it to happen? Am I going to get that feeling in film and TV ever in my life? And uh, not totally with Fleabag, but I'd say a good 50%. Like, I'm getting there. And that makes me really excited. It gives me a lot of hope for uh, p- potential things in the future. We talk a lot in um, in, in, in directing, a lot. We, we're used to, I suppose. Um, about how uh, oftentimes it's, there's this kind of joke that um, if you're going to see some like crappy off-Broadway theater that is like experimental and devised and this strange thing, what you're going to see is going to suck now, but is going to be the only thing they're doing in movies in about 20 years. Yeah. And because it, what you're seeing is a concept. Right, right, right. That you're seeing all of the new edge stuff, that, that you're seeing all of the exciting original shit. That's actively being workshopped. That's actively being workshopped. And even though it's awful right now, it's an interesting idea. And it's, and it's being fostered and it's, and it's being sculpted in off-Broadway theater or in this like tiny basement theater that no one really gives a shit about right now. But that's going to turn into a very large concept eventually, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Hamilton would have been laughed off a stage 30 years ago. But after a lot of sculpting and after a lot of figuring it out, it is now the most popular musical of all time. Yeah. Or at least of the past, like, 50 years maybe, um, which I suppose is pretty much all the time. Anyway, um, <laughs> and and that's something that I, I, I find really enjoyable about Fleabag is that, uh, it, is that it uses that, right? It feels like it came straight from experimental theater to the screen rather than to Broadway. It's coming to the screen now, and it is actually effective. And I think also partially to speak on uh, the sort of internal conflict an external conflict too, and the relationship between Fleabag and the audience is that uh, in that dialogue, right, you think that you're getting insight into Fleabag's internal conflict when that is purely not the case, mm-hmm. right? So you're getting a lot of her internal thoughts and like what she's thinking in that moment, but she's not expressing them out loud to her like scene partner per se. Yeah. Um, but. The, you're just getting her internal thoughts and not actually the internal experience. Interesting. I think is, yeah. But I, I think that's what also partially really enriches that character relationship between us and Fleabag. And it's kind of one of those things that it being on the screen and it being told in the manner that it is wouldn't really kind of be the same way or maybe it would be different like i kind of want to see like i want to see a stage production of the first and second season of fleabag like there's a part of me right because because now i'm just curious how would that translate back 
Uh, I just find it really interesting. But I know, obviously, that shouldn't happen. Like, as an artist, like, I'm able to say, like, that shouldn't happen, sure. you know? And also, like, as an artist, like, as much as, man, what if they did a third season? Like, I'm also able to say they shouldn't do a third season because there are sometimes, like, a story ends and it should just end. And, like, the fact that we got even a second season is, like, a miracle in the first place. Um but I, I think they were able to sort of tell a story and make the experience here both profoundly unique um, and still have it be inspired by theater. But I think, yeah, it's very much so possible that we are sitting here and we are discussing the sort of saplings and sort of maybe maybe predicting, maybe looking towards the future of we could very well see TV and movies that go a lot closer to this style, right? Yeah. There's so many, so much of the time that like something adapted from theater doesn't really work that well on the screen. Yeah. You know, it, I think like you touched on this. We talked about the Macbeths that we saw, and we've we've mentioned it in a few episodes before, but we saw a bunch of different versions of Macbeth, but those still feel inherently theatrical performances but it felt like they were brought down from being on screen yeah. as opposed to fleabag which was enhanced yeah. by being on screen a different experience from the stage show but also the stage show was a one-woman show and then phoebe waller bridge chose to do something specifically different with the screen adaption that's exactly right and it really aided the cohesive storytelling and the experience making them both unique but special that's exactly right. It, 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 it's a matter of making them different and being aware that they're supposed to be different. That that film is a vastly different medium than theater. And so if you're translating from one to the other, you need to be aware of that. And with the Macbeths, uh, they just simply were not. They, they, they weren't, they didn't give themselves the grace of, uh, you know, Ch- changing that around, um, and 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 that's a, that, that's a shame. That really is a shame. That that you, you need to be aware of that, especially whenever you're doing some sort of classical text. Right. That, that 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 that's not going to directly translate to the film. You're going to have to cut and maybe even rewrite some things and figure out how to uh, take that and put that on film. Um, and the extent of sort of theatrical inspiration in film and television uh, happens here and there, but the only examples that I can think of are when it's primarily uh, movies, and these are movies that are really only set, for the most part, in one location. Uh, The only examples I can think of are Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs and The Hateful Eight. Sure. That they're essentially their own little whodunits that the majority of those films just take place in one location. Mm -hmm. And that is the only thing that I can think of, that like these roots are theatrically based. Yeah. That the emphasis of having... Most, if not all, of the action be in one location. Yeah, that is that's theatrically based, and the roots are very clear. Um, but it's enriching to watch something that is different, that is still it still has those roots, but in a very very different way. And yeah. instead, the roots is in the sort of storytelling as opposed to the setting. Right. Well, that, that that's a big thing they do in a lot of classic movies, and and that is really interesting to look back at. Is because most like rope, 
like rope. I love rope. Hitchcock, right? Yeah, Hitchcock. A lot, a lot of Hitchcock. Stuff. I was literally about to mention rope. I'm so mad. That uh, shit. That. I mean, it's essentially a stage play. Like the camera. Yeah, it is. It doesn't even change it's cool cameras, as hell too. right? Uh, no, no. Well, but, well, but it's like one, one set. Yeah, you know. There's, there's only one, I think, cut in the entire movie. Other than that, it's just, it's just straight. It's just the whole thing. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's fantastic. And uh, but all real like um classic film directors that you see had to have been trained in theater, and they use a lot of that influence. It's it's cool to watch. Um, I want to dive into my uh, heady play. Oh ho ho! Bringing this segment back. Oh, bring in the jingle. Oh, I we need to make a, some sort of imaging for Heady Play. What do you think? Uh, uh, do you think, my friend, Heady Play was in last week, and you think I would edit an episode with no imaging? I'm just making sure. Okay, so. Hedy- but you know what I liked about that? That it was that that it just showed me you don't listen to her. Episodes. Oh my gosh! Shush your mouth. No, go ahead I with your Heady do. Play. It's just that maybe... this happy music is still going. By the way. Oh, it better. Be. I'm not gonna look at you. I'm so, I'm so sorry. Um, heady play. Uh, what is heady play? Heady play is whenever we uh, notice something about the thing that we have uh, just viewed or uh, consumed that is uh, specifically heady play, a, a smart move, a smart decision. And if they'd done something else, it probably would have been pretty dumb. Yep. Um, heady play of them to have put to have put Andrew Scott um, in the end in the position. Uh, where he rejects her. Oh my God, we haven't even discussed Talked, we haven't even character about the, relationships no, hardly. Barely even the story, yeah. Because we were saying the linchpin of the second season was the fact that somebody can see Fleabag interact with the audience. And yeah. that character is the priest, but the thing is about the priest, it's also Fleabag's love interest. You see the conflict there already. Yeah. And 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 the, the the heady play of of them making making sure that he rejects her because the story would not have been complete or proper or fleabag esque or satisfying. Um, and it's weird because yes, it would have been satisfying if they ended up together, but it is much more satisfying intellectually knowing that they did not because that is exactly what was supposed to happen. That, yeah. that is how it was supposed to be made. And they did a very good job of tricking us that that wasn't the case. But goodness gracious, it it landed. It really, the, 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 the plane landed. And it leads me to my gold medal, oh. which is, uh, as you all know, us, us saying that something was fantastic or maybe our, our favorite part, um, whether that be a specific character or a moment or whatnot. Um, for me, my gold medal was It Will Pass. It Will Pass was just that line was can you give context to that line? yeah of course was uh fantastic it was uh th- pretty much the last moment where uh fleabag and the priest are sitting on uh a a, a bus bus stop bench and um they're talking about uh y- y- you know the fact that they're probably not gonna be together or whatever and uh and she starts crying, and she's like, "It's just, I love you, right?" And every every piece of media that you've ever seen in your entire life trains you to believe that he's gonna say, "I love you too," or something along those lines. And instead, he just says, with all of the grace that Andrew Scott can muster, it will pass. And it's like it's heart wrenching, it but is. it's it's beautiful in the same way. And 
really just fantastic. But oh my god, it's it's a really great moment. I need to rewatch this show. Already. It's so good. It's so good. Um, and 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 I know that you also have a gold medal, yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, I mean, first of all, like that moment is incredible. I don't know, like how the show ended was perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. It was a perfect ending Can't to the show more. that And that's rare. It's hard to do. And it's and but and it ends with them not being together because that makes sense because of like who they are and, and what they believe in and and their relationships and their lives, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh and particularly particularly with the priest and his and his relationship with God, right? And like he he can't give that up, right? Like he can, he can be with Fleabag, but it's never, like that relationship will never be alive to such a point where it can stay alive, right? Yeah. Um, if if I were to put a diagnosis on it, but uh, and then and then with the series ending with Fleabag waving goodbye to the camera and sort of like looking at it with finality, like I have to walk my own path. Yeah. And I can't have you as my confidant anymore like i need to be my own person and maybe like some of it and probably it's me you know putting two and two when the two is actually a three uh is like her realizing that like we maybe we brought her down or we brought her back right that we were holding her back rather that like the most enriching experiences for her is when we weren't an active participant in the scene with her mm. when she was forced to not involve us. And maybe those were the realest moments for her. Once again, maybe I'm reading into it. I kind of want to watch the show again because now I'm like, I just thought of that theory on the spot. I'm like, oh, you know what? You know what, Danny? Maybe. So, but with that being said, we haven't even talked about this person. We said her name, but we haven't even talked about this person and the quality of her acting and how much of a goddamn Christmas treat she is in this it's show. It's so good, yeah. My gold medal is for Olivia Coleman. I love this woman. Woo! I've not seen enough of her work. Uh, the most that I've seen her in is, we talked about it last week, Broadchurch. Broadchurch. And it, she's incredible in that. And to see her be this sort of really, really kind individual and then translated into this volcano in this show. Yeah. This dormant volcano in this show. Passive-aggressive all the time, but... It's so good yeah. because of just how subtle she does everything. And she lets the work, you know, breathe. And she doesn't put anything on top of it. Yeah. Meaning that she's not, like, overacting or anything. Because it's True. very easy for her as the godmother uh, who is actually marrying uh, Fleabag and Claire's father. Uh, it's very easy for her character to be over the top. But never is she really and what makes her so over the top is the fact that she doesn't have to work and she doesn't have to do anything that like her presence alone is enough to just just drive a nail into somebody's chest and she does and she knows that yeah and so just kind of like allowing that sort of seethe under and just like her saying in a scene you know it, it it troubles me so much that i can't I can't get the image out of my head of you just suffering in that cafe. I mean, I feel so bad for you. All I see in my head is you suffering in that cafe. I wish I could just do something. 
and then she that's smiles. so good oh god and like i i don't want this gold medal to detract from the fact that everybody from this show should get a gold medal uh um, true like one person we haven't talked about at all is brett gilman who plays claire's husband and mm. he's the biggest piece of shit and mm. uh he does an incredible job on the show for it right but yeah. and and it's a perfect example of he is exactly what that character needed and that speaks to so much of the casting of the show and the performances and the amount of trust that was placed into the actors of this show and so it really pays off in the end uh for the experience as the viewer so uh, now that we've, you know, really t- taken this journey, taken this journey down Fleabag Lane, I- I'm wondering, Danny, any final thoughts from you in terms of just the overall show and, you know, what what we can take away from it and uh, maybe how it might inspire you, maybe how it might, uh, you know, a- add to your artistic hunger for the future? Firstly, you don't realize how good the first season is while you're in it. You realize how good it is when you finish it, and then you realize how amazing it is when you finish season two. Yeah. I want to make that very clear. So if for whatever reason you're still listening and you haven't watched this show, just sit yourself down. It's not very long at all. Treat them as movies, I would say. Treat them as two separate movies instead of uh, two separate seasons of television. And... Just enjoy the ride that this show puts you on. There's a lot more under the surface that from the first viewing, it's hard to see and it's hard to articulate. Um, But I I really want to watch this show in the near future again. Now, with that being said, also, uh, it makes me really excited about future work, not only in the theatrical space, but also uh, on the screen and how primarily the sort of devices and the storytelling and how theater is done, how that can be translated uh, into screen where it's still a uniquely screen-based experience, but with the roots from theater. So I'm really looking forward to more pieces of art that is like that. And so it makes me really excited to sit back, watch, and experience in the future and it makes me certainly hungrier as an artist because of course you and I both being artists we always want to be on the ride for the next big thing because the next big thing is always very very exciting um so it's it's just exciting to then watch something that you say to yourself this could very well be the very next big thing yeah so it's cool to watch. What about you, Mac? I, I'd say a similar thing, just in terms of uh, I am so excited to see more and more uh, theatrical elements being used in film and TV. I'm so excited that um, uh, all of the ideas that I had, that I, I had um, a decent time creating in uh, theater, any any ideas that I had that are new or things that I haven't seen yet that I want to start seeing more and more, I'm realizing those can probably be translated just as well to, to film and TV as long as I'm willing to uh, listen and to edit in the same way that Phoebe Waller-Bridge does. Yeah. Um, uh, 
yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, this, this is a huge learning show. As, as we saw, we talked about just what we learned from the show pretty much for 99% of this podcast. We only talked about the story for like a split second. It, it was mainly just talking about how much we learned from just consuming the show. Yeah. It's so fascinating, the whole thing. We were so caught up on the device of this show because of how well it did it. Like, yeah. I mean, we didn't talk much about the plot per se. Even um, though it was stunning. Yeah, even though the plot is really, really good and it's really thoughtly well put together. Um, but what had us really on the edge of this discussion discussion was not necessarily the story being told, but it was particularly, particularly how the story was told. Correct. Um, so, yes, that, 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 that is uh, where I think I would uh, leave Fleabag, and I definitely return to it from time to time, and I, and I highly encourage, if anyone has seen Fleabag, to rewatch if you haven't. Obviously, you got to watch it. It's, um, it's, it's stellar. It really is stellar. Um, the whole series is, and uh, just Steve Waller-Bridge in general. We need to be watching out for her because she's, um, she's, she's coming. Is it a sizzle serve to say that I'm glad that it's only two seasons and it's not going to be renewed, probably? No, that, that, I think that makes sense. Um, I think we got exactly how much we deserved and how, how much we needed from the show. Because there are so many times television goes on for too long that or, like, loses BBC is usually good about that. identity. Yeah. BBC is very good about that, yeah. Um, so, sir, I'm, I'm safely assuming what we're watching this week. We're going to have to. The Sopranos. Fuck you. <laughs> the Wire season five. We oh, are sure. we are finishing the Wire. It's been a journey. That epic Odyssey. Oh my god! But I I haven't watched an episode yet. Um, I'm so excited. Me too. Me too. Uh, and it's it's also really nice to, you know, look at this uh series of Fleabag and then be able to finish the Wire next week and just really take in. Just two fantastic series of television. Yeah. What a joy. Thank you. You want a kiss? Let's just fucking make out. <laughs>